Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, the rest of you, please open your Bibles to John chapter 10. Uh, If you did not bring a Bible with you, there is a white paperback Bible in a chair in front of you, somewhere near. If you look to the left and to the right, you should be able to find one. John 10 is on page 523 of the white paperback Bibles. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 of John 10. Uh, We're in a sermon series (coughs) here at New Life called Trembling Before the Word, uh, based on Isaiah 66, our Uh, call to worship from this morning, and we're just taking one Sunday after another to look at what the Bible says about the Bible, basically. Uh, We're trying to develop a a doctrine of the Scriptures. Last week, uh, we talked about this question, is the Bible reliable? That is, the English Bibles that you have in your hands, are those reliable um, transmissions of the way the Bible was written 2,000 or so years ago. It's a very common accusation that comes against the Bible. It's been copied so many times. It's been translated so many times. How can we possibly know what it originally meant? And so if you want to listen to that sermon, it is available online. That message took a kind of an apologetic tone, that is uh, seeking to make a defense for the Bible against accusations that are often brought to it. And that's going to be the similar kind of tone that we're going to strike today. Um, we're considering another accusation that comes to the Scriptures. Now, in the next two Sundays, we're, we're going to get a little more kind of hands-on and practical. We're going to talk about Bible interpretation. How, how do we know that we're interpreting the Bible correctly? And we'll also talk the Sunday after that about uh, how we gain from the power of the Bible through memorization and meditation. Uh, but today, another kind of apologetic sermon regarding the Bible, and the question today is this, is the Bible complete? Is the Bible complete? That is, do we have all the books in our Bible that we ought to have? And conversely, are there some books in our Bible that we shouldn't have? In other words, why these 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New? Why these? Why not others? How did that decision get made? How do we know that decision was right? This might not sound like the most inspiring question to be considering this morning, but I would submit to you that it's a very important question for us to think about as Christians. And one reason is because this question has been kind of thrust into the popular culture by virtue of a book that came out about 13 years ago called The Da Vinci Code. And a movie starring Tom Hanks was made uh, a few years afterward. And although The Da Vinci Code presents itself as um, a book of fiction, it brings into it a lot of historical facts, uh, not all of them so accurate. And one of the events that the book attempts to deal with is this uh, process by which the Bible was put together. And according to Dan Brown, the author of this book, There were about 80 books considered for um, the scriptures, and um, there was just kind of a free-for-all going on in the early centuries of the church where all kinds of books were being read, in particular books that don't really agree with the doctrine that we find in our Bibles today, books that uh, presented Jesus as a man, not as uh, the divine Son of God. And 
all of these different people are reading these books, and then way late, you know, four centuries, fourth century, um, the emperor Constantine comes in, and he gathers some people together at the Council of Nicaea, and they just make this unilateral decision to choose the books that we have in our Bible now and to label anybody who disagrees a heretic in essence, oppressing those who favored these other books of the Bible that have now been lost in obscurity over the centuries, but now recently are kind of being discovered, and now people are starting to wonder, yeah, what about those lost books? What about the lost gospels? That's the term that's often used to describe uh, these books that aren't in our Bible. And so, just to give you an example of this, that one of the characters in the Da Vinci Code, his name is Teabing, And here's a a quote from him in the book as he's describing the uh, collation of the Bible. The early church literally stole Jesus from his original followers, hijacking his human message, shrouding it in an impenetrable cloak of divinity and using it to expand their own power. All these people, they, they were just in good faith, reading these different books of the Bible, but here comes the church and Constantine and all these authoritarian, oppressive people, and they impose their will upon the church and leave uh, many books out. And so this is the question now that's been raised, the one that I'm presenting to you. How do we know we have the right books? Well, the, the term that's used to describe this topic is called canon. That's what we're talking about today. The, the canon of Scripture. Canon means literally standard rule, uh, but as applied to the Bible, it means the, the, the standard that is used to measure the books that should be included in the Scripture. So when someone says a book is canonical, that means it belongs in the Bible. If a book is not canonical, it doesn't belong in the Bible. So it might surprise you maybe to know that there are these other kind of gospels out there. Um, You know, we have the epistles of Peter in the New Testament, but do you know that there's a gospel of Peter? That is a description of the life of Jesus. There's a gospel of Judas that came out to discover, I think, a while ago. Someone named Elaine Pagels wrote a a book about that. Uh, There's even a gospel of Mary. And so this question now, is before us. So I've, I've kind of wondered, I mean, why is it that people would want to challenge the books that are in our Bible? And, uh, you know, I'd be interested to know your perspective on this. I think probably one reason why is because there's something, I guess, kind of exciting about it. It just seems like this kind of, you know, quest to find these forgotten books, kind of a Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing. You know, we're all trying to discover these forbidden books that have been lost in history. Maybe there's a certain kind of an excitement that comes along. But I wonder if another reason why people are looking for other books outside the Bible is because, for some reason, what's already in the Bible just isn't enough. And they're hoping to find something better, something more exciting, something more liberating. Kind of an underlining assumption in this look for something beyond the Bible is a dissatisfaction with the Bible that we have. 
Another reason might be simply this. You know what? If we can find that some of the books in our Bible shouldn't be there, boy, that could be a very convenient way of ridding ourselves of some very uncomfortable passages in the Bible that we don't really like, some of the unpopular ones, some of the ones that don't quite fit with the cultural trends that we see in our world today. Well, we look at some of these passages we don't like and we can tell ourselves, well, maybe they, they don't belong. Maybe they're not supposed to be in our Bible. And maybe people kind of get this hope that we can fix the Bible by looking outside of it. Well, we're going to look at John chapter 10, uh, 1 through 6. And when you read this passage, you might think, what in the world does this have to do with the canon of Scripture? And I would just ask you to be patient as uh, I seek to explain this. But um, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, and uh, he gives some direction that I think is applicable to this question of the canon. So let's read this. If you'd please stand now for the reading of God's word, John 10, 1 through 6. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Lord, we look for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Do that now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So in this passage, John chapter 10, it's kind of like a metaphor here. And uh, when Jesus talks about the shepherd, he's referring to, to himself. The shepherd refers to Jesus. When he refers to the sheep, he's referring to, to Christians or the church. And what Jesus says here in verses 3 and 4 in particular is that his sheep, those people who belong to him, look at the end of verse 3, they will hear his voice, that they'll be able to recognize it. Why? In verse 4, because they know his voice. Those who belong to Jesus have a distinct and keen ability to hear when Jesus speaks, kind of like when you hear your spouse's voice in a crowded room or your parents' voice. You just have this ability, don't you, to, to distinguish it. You just know that's mom, that's my husband, that's my wife. That's kind of what's at work here. And as we consider today how it is that we hear Jesus' voice, since he's not walking on the earth right now, having been resurrected and at the right hand of the Father, we ask, how do we hear his voice? We hear it through Scripture. And so what I'm suggesting is that this passage can apply to the canon of Scripture by telling us that the books of Scripture, the books of Scripture in which Jesus is speaking are the ones that the sheep, the church, will hear and recognize. And the ones that are not proper for scripture, the ones in which Jesus is not speaking, the ones that are fraudulent and pretending to be the real thing, the sheep recognize that too. They know what belongs and they know what don't, does not belong in the canon of scripture. And, and so 
I'm going to unfold this for you by showing you objectively how this has happened over the course of church history, at least in the first century of church history. There are at least four tests that have been used to evaluate any book of the Bible to make a decision about whether it should be in the Scriptures, whether it should be canonical. So we're going to go through these four tests uh, fairly briefly so you can see how it is the sheep have discerned the voice of Jesus in Scripture uh, over the past. So here's the first question. When was the book written? It's the first kind of test that is administered to any book that would purport itself as a canonical biblical book. Now, now let me say this to begin with. I'm not going to be talking too much about the Old Testament canon. I mean, that, that's a different question. Um, the reason I'm not going to talk about that is because it hasn't been disputed as much as the New Testament canon. You look, through the old, uh, you look through the New Testament and you see almost every single book in the Old Testament is quoted. But more significantly, when you see Jesus and Paul teaching in the New Testament and getting all kinds of uh, pushback and controversy from those who objected to their teaching, you don't have any of them ever saying, oh, Jesus, you're quoting the book of 1 Samuel or the book of Genesis, the book of Malachi, and that shouldn't be in the Old Testament. No one ever says that. Because even those fiercest opponents of Jesus knew that the books he was quoting belonged in the Old Testament. So, I mean, that's just a very brief apologetic for the books that belong in the Old Testament, but we're going to be thinking more about the New Testament um, here today. Um, and so here's the, the test of antiquity is what it's called. When was the book written? And so you can just explain it very simply. The closer a book was written to the time of Jesus, the more likely it would be included in the Bible. And the longer the time period that existed from the time of Jesus to the time the book was written, the less likely it would be included in the canon of Scripture. Now, if a book was really old, written very close to the time of Jesus, didn't necessarily mean that it would be in the canon, but it was a very strong argument in favor. Now, here's the important thing to, to know. All the 27 books in the New Testament, among the countless other books that were written, and it is true, a lot of other books were written, the 27 books of the New Testament are the oldest of them all. The 27 books of the New Testament are the ones written most closely to the time of Jesus. They all satisfied this test of antiquity. And I'm going to take you another step further here to, to show you that not only were the books of the Old Testament written in a very early time, but even the concept of a canon was developing very, very early. Remember what Da Vinci Code said, that it was Constantine in the 4th century who finally got together and tried to put together a list of, uh, of, of uh, the proper books in the Bible. But that didn't happen until three or 400 years later. But, but let me show you a couple of passages here that are very significant for this question. First of all, 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Here's Peter. He says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, this is like around, around year 65, by the way, when 2 Peter is written, wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. A couple things to notice here. Notice how Peter just kind of assumes everybody knows who Paul is. He doesn't have to identify Paul. He's our brother Paul. Why do they know who Paul is? Because they've been reading all his letters not just one letter or two letters, all his letters. There's a multitude of letters that Paul has been writing. They've been disseminated throughout the church, and they're called Scripture, as they do the other Scriptures. This is first century. This is, again, year 65 or so. We're seeing that the letters of Paul already being considered Scripture, already be considered part of the canon This idea that the canon was some later development three or four centuries down the road is untrue. It was already beginning in the first century. Another example, 1 Timothy 5, 18. Paul writes, he says, The scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. That first quote there about the ox is from Deuteronomy 25. The second quote the laborer deserves his wages, is from Luke 10, 7. And so here's Paul putting an Old Testament passage, very clearly considered scripture, on par with a New Testament passage from the Gospel of Luke. Again, written in the first century, and we see very clearly the concept, idea of a canon is already in place and didn't wait for some church council later on. So that's The test of antiquity, the question of when the book was written. The earlier, the more likely it would be included. Second question is this, who wrote the book? This would be another question asked about a book that would claim to have a place in the Bible. Well, let's look back at our text. John chapter chapter 10, Um, we're, we're seeing this theme here. The sheep hear the voice of Jesus. And... I mentioned to you a moment ago, how do we hear the voice of Jesus today? We hear that in Scripture. But now, here's a question that I would ask to what I just said. How do we know what Jesus says through Scripture when Jesus didn't write any Scripture? Jesus didn't write a book of the Bible. I mean, there's a sense in which, as the second person of the Trinity, His Holy Spirit guided the writers of the Bible. But I mean, in His earthly ministry, Jesus didn't pick up a quill and write any letters. So, how do we hear his voice in Scripture? And here's the answer. It's because he appointed the apostles to take his message and communicate that message to you and me. He appointed people who knew what was going on and understood what he was trying to teach and gave them the responsibility of continuing his message. So, Let me show you how this works. Here's Mark 3. And he, referring to Jesus, appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, learn from him as he taught, and he might send them out to preach and declare his message. This is how Jesus was going to communicate his message. He would speak it, but he'd also appoint apostles to continue that message. Now, here's another passage. This is never realized the significance of this passage until I was preparing for this message. This is 2 Peter 3 again, earlier in the chapter. Peter says, <clears throat> Peter says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember 
the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. When he refers to the holy prophets, who's that? That's the Old Testament. But here again, what Peter is doing is putting the words of the apostles on the same level of authority as the holy prophets, the Old Testament. So here we see that the status of an apostle is absolutely essential for a book to be included in the scriptures. If it's written by an apostle or if it's written by somebody with very close association to an apostle, it's a viable candidate to be in the Bible. So as we look in the New Testament, you know, apostles, Matthew, John, Peter, Paul, those are apostles. We see their books in the Bible. That's one of the reasons they, they got in. Um, there are some others who are, <coughs> who are not apostles, Mark and Luke. Mark, however, wrote under the direct oversight of Peter. Luke wrote under the direct oversight of Paul, Peter and Paul, both apostles. And so that's why those letters are considered legitimate inclusions in the canon. There was a, a book called The Shepherd of Hermas um, that was written very early, actually very orthodox in what it taught, and some people even today think that it ought to be in the Bible. Problem is, it's not apostolic. Hermas was not an apostle. And so while that book met other criteria, it didn't meet this criteria, and so was not included. Who wrote the book? When was the book written? Who wrote the book? Third thing, what is the book like? What does the book teach? What's kind of the basic feel and thrust of the book? That was another question that had to be considered about any book that would claim a right to be in the Bible. So let's go back to our text here, John chapter 10, verse 5. It says, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The sheep recognize the voice of Jesus. They hear his voice. They, they know it when they hear it, even in Scripture. But Jesus also says that the sheep will notice when a stranger is talking and that they'll be able to discern that and know that that doesn't belong. And if we think of the sheep here as the church, what this is saying is that the church, the body of believers, are going to be able to identify a fraud and reject it from the canon because they'll be able to recognize that these books just don't fit. They're, they're just not the real thing. You know, it's like if you Talk to someone maybe from Mexico who comes to the United States and he eats at a Mexican restaurant in the United States. I mean, they'll almost always tell you, you know, it's okay, but it's just not the real thing. Or a Chinese person will come and eat at a Chinese restaurant in the United States. You know, it's just, it's not like home. It's inauthentic. It's not the real thing. This is what Jesus is saying. The sheep, the church, will be able to recognize what is not the real thing as they examine what the letter is like, what it's teaching. And so this is called the test of orthodoxy. Does the letter present the good news, the basic news of, of the gospel in all of its fullness? There are certain doctrinal requirements for a book to be included 
in the scriptures. If they weren't there, the book would be rejected. So let me give you some examples. If you look in the lost gospels, here are the kinds of things that show up in the lost gospels. Uh, One is this, they barely ever mention the name of God. You know, that that should be a red flag. (laughs) Um, Very often they're presenting Jesus to us, as I mentioned earlier, not not as one who is the divine son of God, but one who is merely human. Generally, the lost gospels downplay and, and totally eliminate any reference to the divinity of Christ. Anybody examining those books would know. That's it's not the real thing. That doesn't fit. Jesus is very rarely, if ever, referred to as the Messiah. He's very rarely, if ever, referred to as the Christ. There's very rare, if any, mention of the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. There's no mention of Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. It's just never there in the lost Gospels. Some of you might know this. It's one of the famous passages mentioned from the Gospel of Thomas. But in the Gospel of Thomas, it is said that a woman has to become a man in order to be saved. It's just kind of ironic that so many people who just are longing for the Gospel of Thomas to be included in the Bible probably haven't read that passage. In the Gospel of Peter... Jesus is said to have come out of the tomb resurrected with an enormous head that extends to the clouds and the cross then follows him talking, talking cross. (laughs) You see, the early church is looking at these books and they're saying, you know what, this isn't the real thing, that this isn't right, that this is not what ought to be in our Bibles. Now, we might ask at this point, why is it that some people can recognize what ought to be in the Bible and others can't? Because <laughs> there are plenty of people saying that these books should be in the Bible. And here's where we get to the spiritual element that is at work here. There, there's a profoundly important spiritual component to this whole thing. What Jesus is saying here is, my sheep hear my voice. Those who belong to me those that I've laid down my life for, those that the Father has given me from before the foundation of creation to lay down my life to save them, those who have belonged to me forever, those are the ones who hear, those are the ones who know. Those who are not my sheep, they can't hear it. They don't see it. They don't know. If you go down to verse 26, look what he says in chapter 10. Um, He says, You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. You're not part of the sheep. So you you don't get it. You don't see it. You can't recognize these divine qualities in Scripture. And even going back to verse 5, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand. He's speaking to the Pharisees. It just goes over their heads. I mean, this might sound like kind of a cop-out, but I think it's the truth. It's just you've got to be a Christian in order to be able to recognize the proper books that belong in our Bible. It's a spiritual thing. Look what 1 Corinthians 2 says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, you know, maybe that sounds kind of elitist, 
Like, oh, you know, you're, oh, you're saying you understand and we don't. Oh, you Christians get it, but, but we don't. I mean, it does sound elitist, doesn't it? <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Uh, consider a, a tone-deaf person, right? There are some people who just can't recognize the right note. They can't recognize a, a, a melody. They can't tell when something's on key or off key. They just don't have that ability. Some of you know that when you're singing and you're hearing the person singing next to you. You know, some people seem tone-deaf to you. But the tone-deaf person can't say, oh, all this stuff about singing on key, what a sham this is. You know, because I can't hear it, it must be made up. Or you people who can hear on key are elitist. No, there are just some people who can hear it and some people who can't. And what Jesus is saying is my sheep can hear and those who aren't my sheep, they can't. They can't hear it. Now, if you're thinking, well, I want to see it, though. I want to hear it. I want to be able to recognize the voice of Jesus. Well, here's what you do. You ask him. You say, Jesus, soften my heart and open my eyes that I may see. Pray that prayer. And he'll answer that. And he'll give you those eyes that you're looking for. But what this test is saying is that the books of the Bible, there's something about them that just communicate truth. This is how our confession of faith says it. The heavenliness of the matter, referring to Scripture, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. That's the difference between the books that belong and the books that don't. The sheep hear it, the sheep recognize it. Last thing, where has the book been accepted? Where has the book been accepted? And this is the test of universality. And this is just... The idea that the books that belong in the Bible are books that are universally accepted among all the various churches that were receiving those early letters um, of the New Testament. So, you know, I would just point to John 10 again and say that, you know, notice here, it's not the sheep giving authority to the shepherd, it's not the sheep granting authority to the shepherd. It's the sheep recognizing an authority that is already there. It's an intrinsic authority in the shepherd that the sheep hear. And so this is how this applies to the canon. There's this common perception that there were all these books, countless books up for grabs, and the church came along and granted authority to certain books that it wanted to be authoritative and then declared to everybody, this is an authoritative book, and this is all an act of the church. But that's not what happened. It's more like what's happening here in John 10. It's just the sheep recognizing the truth. It's the church just being able to see what is already there. The church just recognized over and over again, congregations were saying, yeah, this one is good, this one isn't. This one is good, this one isn't. 
and throughout the region, as the letters of Paul and the rest of the apostles were being disseminated, there was almost universal agreement. Now, yeah, there were some disagreements here and there, but those disagreements were minor, they were infrequent, and they're not surprising when you think about the different languages and cultures that were receiving these letters and the amount of time it would just take to get letters to churches and to hear back from them. They didn't have the internet back then. Communication was more difficult. And so here's the way Bruce Metzger puts it. Neither individuals nor councils created the canon. Instead, they came to recognize and acknowledge the self-authenticating quality of these writings which impose themselves as canonical upon the church. Like the canon of, church, of, of the scriptures is just something driven by the Spirit and it's what kind of chose itself in a sense under the providence and wisdom of God. Where has the book been accepted? Is the Bible complete? Friends, the answer to that is yes. All 27 books of the New Testament pass all four of these tests that I have just shared with you. All the lost gospels and the other books that didn't make it, they all fail at least one of these tests. And if you're one who is just kind of wanting these other books of the Bible to, to, or these other uh, lost gospels to be included in the Bible, if you've got a kind of a curiosity about that, and that's something you're kind of longing and hoping for, I mean, I would just ask a question to you. What is it that you're hoping to find in those that you don't find in your, in your Bible right now? What else are you looking for? Is the gospel, as it's proclaimed in the pages of the 66 books of the Bible, not enough? To know that God loves sinners that God has sent his son into this world, a Messiah as prophesied over and over again in the Old Testament, a Messiah born in a manger, a Messiah who humbled himself in that way and lived a perfect life, obeyed all the requirements of the covenant and the law of God, a Messiah who went to a cross, he died there, he shed his blood to achieve atonement, all the different nuances of what happened on the cross, justification, pronounced not guilty before his law, redemption, being purchased back from our old way of life, adoption into the family of God, into the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, propitiation, the wrath of God being turned away from us, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the direction of the scriptures to live a life pleasing to God, the promise of eternal life, a resurrected body, a new earth on which we'll live for eternity with our brothers and sisters worshiping at the throne of Jesus. And that's not enough. Everything you need to know to be reconciled to God and to live a life pleasing to God is in our Bible. And you don't need anything outside of it. It's sufficient. It's enough. Let me give one challenge here. Uh, as I close, uh, as we get close to the new year, I suppose it's time to be thinking about reading through the Bible. Um, the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed. That, that means all of it. That means every book in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so you need all of them in, in your life. And so it's a healthy exercise to get into learning to read entirely through the Bible. Um, 
Maybe you tried it this year and you failed. Maybe you tried it the year before and you failed then too. (laughs) But it's worth trying again. Trying to read through it maybe in two years. But as we get close to the beginning of 2017, maybe it's a good time uh, to start setting forth some plans to read all of the books of the Bible that God has given us in His grace. Lord, we are thankful that you have revealed your will to us. You've revealed your truth to us in a rich and diverse and powerful way. Uh, Father, make our hearts excited about your word, God. Give us increased confidence in the Bibles that you have given us. And Lord, let your scriptures reign in our hearts and minds. Make us people of your word, God, we pray in Jesus' name.